Welcome to the Faith Podcast. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Pastor Carrick Butler II. We believe today's message will empower you to make Jesus famous in every area of your life. Here's today's message. So our two text scriptures we've been doing as we did this series is Galatians chapter 6 verse 10, which says, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Amen. So we talked about last week, it is our job to do good, it is our turn to do good, no matter if the person before us didn't do good. Amen. Hebrews 10, 38, the first part of the verse says, now the just shall live by faith. It is the job of the just to live by faith. That means faith is not our get-out-of-jail-free card. We don't use faith when we're in an emergency. We don't use faith when just when I preach on faith. We don't just use faith when we feel spiritual. Faith is supposed to be our lifestyle. Amen? As we use the example of a healthy lifestyle, just because you had a kale smoothie one day, you went to the gym sometime last year, and you ran a mile when you were a child, that does not mean you are healthy. It's whatever you do consistently and continually that is, determines your lifestyle. So if you consistently and continually live by faith and use your faith, then you are living by faith. We should be to a point where faith is so not normal to us is a second nature as breathing. Why? We're believers. We're faith people. So say, say it with me. Say, we live by faith. We, by faith. we are building, we are building. Our, family, our family, our house, our, house. our, church, our church, by faith. And on faith. We are the house of faith. And we are better together because we are faith. We're all in for our family, for our church, for our community, and for what God has called us to do. Since we live by faith, faith is the foundation of our decision making for every area of our life. Faith has to be the guiding force, has to be the foundation of our decision-making. So that means when we, how we relate to our spouse, it's connected to faith in God. When it comes to dating, it's connected to faith in God. When it comes to raising our children, it's connected to faith in God. We don't just make decisions because we're making decisions. It all runs through the guiding force, the foundation of our lives, faith in God. And the opening message of the series, we talk about Jesus said, have faith in God. He didn't say, would you like to have faith in God? Or it would be nice for you to have faith in God. Or it's a great idea, it's a great life principle if you have faith in God. It was a divine command, have faith in God. So when it comes to your marriage, have faith in God. If you're single, when it comes to dating, have faith in God. When it comes to raising your kids, have faith in God. When it comes to the economy, have faith in God. When it comes to election on Tuesday, have faith in God. We can never part from that. Because wherever you place your confidence is your God. And the thing is, you can be a great person. You can be smart. You can be wise. You can be all these great things. You can all these people. But there is a place where your ability will let you down. There will be a place where all your fleshly efforts will let you down when you run into a situation that is not big enough for you to do in your own ability then who can rescue you and that ability? It can't always be the government because the government don't have no money. So, well, can't be Pookie and them and Shaquita and Paco and everybody else. They may be busy with their own issues. When it comes down to it, you need to have faith in God. That my confidence is in him. What he can do in me, 
what he can do through me, what he can do for me. See, I want to be a person that God doesn't, use, doesn't move through me in spite of me. But I'm a vessel that he can use me willingly. We have to be people that we put our faith in God. And we know faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we want our faith to grow. We should be in the word continually. We should be hearing the word continually. We should be reading at least one chapter out loud a day. We should be listening to messages throughout the week so that our faith can grow. Amen? So one of the central tenets of the gospel that affects our ability to live by faith is understanding the fullness of forgiveness. One of the central tenets of the gospel that affects our ability to live by faith is understanding the fullness of forgiveness. A wrong concept concerning forgiveness can keep your faith from working from how it should. A misunderstanding of forgiveness will cause you to live at a lower level than God has made available for you to live. So let's go to Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. In order to correctly live by faith, and to get all the benefits faith in God bring us, we must understand forgiveness. Romans 3, 23. Because as you'll see in this message, if you don't correctly understand forgiveness, it's going to mess up your relationships. If you have a misunderstanding of forgiveness, you won't have the greatest relationships you're supposed to have. Romans 3, verse 23 it says, for all have sinned. That's everybody. Everybody in this room. Even your big mama who you love so much. <laughs> all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sin is simply missing the mark. We have all missed the mark of perfection and have done things we shouldn't have. And one of the many things about sin is one of the things you can see from the Old Testament Sin cries out for something. Sin has a voice. Sin is calling for something to happen. Sin is not quiet, even if you do it quietly, even if you do it back in the booth and dark in the corner. Sin has a voice. Sin is calling for something. Go to Romans 6.23, you see what sin calls for. Romans 6, verse 23. Sin has a voice. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is what? But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages or the payment of sin, what sin brings is death. Sin cries out for judgment and death. Say sin Sin. cries out out. for for judgment and death. One of the things you need to realize, in the Old Testament, there are stories of cities whose sinful lifestyle cried out for death, destruction, and judgment. Where God even says, the sin is so grievous, I can hear it. I've heard about it. Sin always has a price. Sin always has a price. A lifestyle of sin will always keep you longer than you want to stay and make you pay more than you want to pay. A lifestyle of sin will always keep you longer than you want to stay and make you pay more than you want to pay. One of the reasons God is so against sin is because of what it does to people's lives. It brings death into their lives. Now, don't think, well, I've sinned before. I didn't keel over and drop dead. Death is not only the part of death. Death also is sickness. It's disease. It's poverty. 
It's bad relationships. It's any of the effects of the curse, where there's poverty, sickness, and death. It's every evil thing is what sin opens the door to. Let's go back a page or two, or just go down in my notes to Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Sin has a voice, and it cries out for judgment. It cries out for destruction. It cries out for death. Romans 5, 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin, this person is Adam, entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Sin, death came into the world when Adam transgressed God's commandment. When Adam and Eve made the decision, we're going to go our own way, not God's way, sin, death was created, and then it came from them. And in that sin, death came all of the curse, every sickness, every disease, every fallen part of humanity was birthed into the world at that moment. But verse 21 says, that as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto our eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. One of the things we see from verse 21 is sin brought death. Or sin ruled by bringing death to people. Sin ruled by bringing death to people. That when sin is full, finished, it brings forth death, as the scripture says. Sin always leads to death. Sin always leads to death. So let's go to Genesis 4. Outside of Adam and Eve, it's the next recording of sin in the scripture, Genesis chapter 4. See, when Adam and Eve sinned, their nature changed. The glory lifted off of them. Sin, death came into the world. Curse came upon the earth. And although it was still spreading through the earth, although it was still new, it was still strong enough to affect the next generation. So we see Cain and Abel, two of the children of Adam and Eve, Cain was a keeper of the ground. He was a farmer. Abel was a shepherd. There was nothing wrong with their profession. God didn't prefer one profession above the other. But in the process of time, it came for them to present an offering to the Lord. So Adam must have taught them about presenting offerings to the Lord. That Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offerings he had not respect. So it came time to give an offering. Now the thing is, God is not going to hold you responsible for, for something you would never known how to do. So this means Cain and Abel were taught what to do and knew what to do. It says Abel brought his first and the fat thereof. So he brought the best and he brought the first. Cain brought an offering, but it wasn't the first and it wasn't the best. Cain brought what was left. Abel decided to tithe. Cain decided to tip God. And so when Abel presented his offering, God had respect towards it. But when Cain presented his offering, God didn't have respect towards it. Cain thought he should get the same treatment that Abel got. Even though he didn't do what Abel did, he expected to get the same props that Abel got. And Cain was very wroth. He was very angry. And his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, why are you angry? Why do you have an attitude? Why is your countenance falling? If you do well, shall you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, listen, sin lies at the door. And unto you shall be his desire, and you shall rule over him. So although he's at the door, you don't have to yield to the sin that's in front of you. And unto you shall be desire, and you shall rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother. 
And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. He killed him. And the Lord said unto Cain, where is Abel, your brother? You know, when God asks you a question, it's not because he doesn't know. And it was my, I don't know, God. Remember my brother's keeper? You know, you, know, you shouldn't lie in the first place, but don't lie to the one who knows everything. But notice what God says, what have you done? The voice, the what? Of your brother's blood cries unto me from the ground. The voice of your brother's blood cries unto me from the ground. So we said sin has a voice. And it cries out for death and destruction. But there's also some situations your sin can create where your situation cries out for you to be judged. Abel's blood was crying out for divine vengeance. Not only is Cain's sin talking against him, but now the witness of Abel's blood is calling out for Cain's destruction. There's voices crying out for destruction. In the Old Testament, God instituted a system of sacrifices that would cover the sins of the people. It wouldn't do away with the sins. It would cover them to help them avoid the consequences of the sin. The sacrifice was symbolic of the redemptive plan of God. The sacrifice reminded the sinner that blood had to be shed. Blood had to be spilt. Death had to come to cover their sin. The only way their sin could be covered, some blood must be shed. And as the scripture reminds us, without the shedding of blood, there's not any forgiveness or remission of sins. So every time they offered a sacrifice in the temple, it was to remind the sinner, something has to die because you made a mistake. Because if this doesn't die, death is coming into your life. So we like to think about Solomon's temple, the temples in the Old Testament as beautiful places. They were beautiful. They smelled good. They wore incense, but it was also a bloody place. It was a place where blood flowed. Because as long as the blood was flowing, judgment wouldn't fall on the nation. One of the issues why Israel always got judged is when they turned to other gods, they stopped offering sacrifices. And there was nothing to cover their sins anymore. And so they started getting the result of their sins. So every time they made a sacrifice, they knew Something had to die. Something has to spill its blood so that I don't have to experience death. This system of substitution sacrifice is called atonement. This system of substitutionary sacrifice is called atonement. In atonement, someone or something else is taking the place of the guilty individual. In atonement, someone or something else is taking the place of the guilty individual. The guilt and its punishment is placed on the sacrifice so that the guilty individual will not have to pay the price for their sin. And so as we say, the system of sacrifice was pointing towards God's redemptive plan. One of the sacrifices in the Old Testament was a lamb. And a lamb is very important to Jewish history. It's very important in the Old Testament. When Abraham and Isaac were upon the mountain because God was in covenant with Abraham. And when you're in covenant... What one party is willing to do, the other party has to be willing to do. So in order for God to send Jesus to be our atonement, to be our substitutionary sacrifice, he had to find a man who was willing to offer up his son in the same way. And so because Abraham was, Abraham was willing to offer Isaac, Jesus could come into the earth. So when Abraham was about to lift up his son Isaac, God says, don't you touch him. But in the beginning of that chapter, Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb. 
But when the angel appeared, he says, there's a ram in the bush for your sacrifice. But Abram had said, God will provide a lamb. God will provide a substitutionary sacrifice. But then you get all the way over to John chapter 1, verse 29. When John saw Jesus, he said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Abraham prophesied, there's coming a lamb. Abraham prophesied, there's coming a substitutionary sacrifice. Abraham prophesied, there's coming an atonement. And John the Baptist, as a prophet of God, said, there it is. There had to be a substitutionary sacrifice to take our place. Because the thing is, you can't do enough good things to outweigh your bad. That's not how it works. You can't say, well, if I have enough karma, I can make it into heaven. That's not how it works. You can never do enough good things to make it in. Our goodness, our good acts, our righteousness like filthy rags. We can never earn our way in. Someone have to pay our way in. Someone have to open the door for us. Because 1 John 4, 10 says, hearing is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means atoning sacrifice. Jesus became our atonement. God punished Jesus so he would never have to punish you. Go to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Let's look at the punishment that was placed on Jesus. Isaiah 53. God punished Jesus, so he never would have to punish you. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs, our sickness, and carried our sorrows, the word means pain. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. That word transgression is our trespasses, our rebellion against God. Iniquity means perversity, depravity, guilt, or the punishment of iniquity. He was wounded for us. He was bruised for our depravity, for our perversities. The chastisement and the punishment of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. See, his stripes were a cat of nine tails. That's nine different lashes on a whip. And on that whip, they put jagged bones and glass and metal shards so that every time it went into his back, they yanked out flesh. It describes it that they beat him so bad he didn't even look like a man. Why? Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So every time we decided we knew better than God, every time we decided to do our thing, to go our own way, to do what we wanted to do, no matter what God said, there was a price for that. There was a punishment for that. And because of that punishment that we deserve to get, God took that punishment and put it on Jesus. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opens not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken for the rebellion. 
and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death because he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. You got to think, he's a loving father. Why did it please God to bruise Jesus? Why did it please God to crush Jesus? It pleased God to bruise Jesus. It pleased God to crush Jesus so you would never have to be crushed. It pleased God to put all that pain, all that punishment, all of what hell could put on Jesus so that you would never have to face it. He hath put him to grief. When he shall make his soul offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify. Say justify. Many, for he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, will I divide him a portion with the great? Because of what Jesus did, now you're the great, and you get part of his reward. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because of Jesus, you are the strong. Because he has poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors and bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be our atonement, our propitiation, our substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus took our place. Jesus took our place. He became our atonement. God punished Jesus so that he would never have to punish you. Go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. God punished Jesus so that he would never have to punish you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. We said sin cries out for death and judgment and destruction. It does. We say there's certain situations you can create in your life that calls out for divine punishment, that calls out for judgment, and there are. So there are voices that are crying out for you to be judged. There's loud voices that cry out for your destruction. There's loud voices that cry out for you to be punished. There's loud voices that cry out for you to pay for your sins. But the good news is there's another voice in the room. Yeah. Hebrews 12, 24, it says, And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So all those, there's some situations that are crying out one thing. Although you're, there's sin that's crying out one thing, the blood cries out something different. The blood of Jesus speaks better and louder than the blood of Abel. Romans 5, 9 tells us that we have been justified by his blood. To be justified, it means to be declared not guilty. To be justified means to be declared not guilty. Although the situations and sin in your life may cry out for death and for judgment, the blood of Jesus cries louder. And although sin says you're guilty, although your situation says you're guilty, although yells out you must pay for what you did, you need to pay for your crimes, there is a louder voice. It is the blood of Jesus, and it shouts, not guilty. You do not have to pay for your sin. 
Jesus paid for. What sense does it make if we went to a place and you were about to buy something at the store and someone came up and paid for it for you? What makes sense for you trying to pay for it? Why would you pay for something that was already paid for you? See, this is the central, tr- central tenet of Christianity, the truth in the very middle of the gospel. You do not have to pay for your sins. That Jesus is the Lamb of God. In Matthew 26, 28, Jesus said that his blood was poured out for the remission or for the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins is a central belief of the gospel. Forgiveness at its root is a financial term. When someone forgives a debt, they completely remove it. When someone forgives a debt, they completely remove it. It is canceled, and the debtor no longer owes any amount. It is not a delay of payment. It's not an agreement of terms. Now I'm going to give you longer to pay it out. I'm going to give you a few extra years. If you do enough good things, I can pay, I'll cancel it for you. That is not what a cancellation of a debt is. When a debt is canceled, it exists no more, and you don't owe anything. The blood of Jesus was a debt cancellation. You don't have to pay God back. You don't owe him anything. This is what was preached throughout the book of Acts. Because in Luke 24, 47, this is what Jesus instructed them to preach. So on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, 38, Peter stood up and said, repent, turn from your ways. Change your mind, go the other direction, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Then Acts 3, 19, repent ye therefore. And be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Blotted out here means to wipe off, to obliterate, to erase. If you erase, it's not there anymore. It's not a cheap eraser that you still see a little bit. It is an eraser that gets it away completely. It's obliterated. It's wiped off. There's no evidence of it anymore. Your debt of sin is canceled. You don't have to pay for your sins at all. Acts 13, verse 38, being known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man Jesus is preached unto you the forgiveness of sin, and by him all that believe are justified from all things. By him, everybody who believed is declared not guilty, from which you could not be justified and declared not guilty by the law of Moses. This is what they preach all throughout the book of Acts in every single city. You don't have to pay for what you did. Jesus paid the price for you. God is not angry at you. He's madly in love with you. God is not looking to punish you because he punished Jesus. So that doesn't mean you have to tiptoe and walk on eggshells with God. He paid the complete price. Go to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift. The what? The what? The what? We said Romans 6, 23 earlier, which says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God 
is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Salvation and forgiveness of sins is a gift. You cannot work for a gift. If you work for it, it's a wage. It's a payment that's owed for you. You don't work for a gift. All you have to do with the gift is receive it. You don't work for it. All you have to do is take it. You don't work for gifts. You just receive it. If salvation and forgiveness of sins is a gift, and it is, then you do not owe God anything. See, it's very religious to say, oh, I owe God everything for all that he's done for me. Now, your heart may be right, but you are theologically incorrect. Salvation is a gift. Forgiveness of sin is a gift. Everything in salvation is a gift. If it's a gift, you don't owe the giver anything. It's a gift. Say, it's a gift. So we don't serve God because we owe him. We serve him all of our days out of deep gratitude because we're so grateful for what he did. Not because we owe him. If it's a gift, you must receive it. It doesn't happen automatically. So it's like, oh, if it's a gift, well, everybody's saved. No, that's not how it works. If it's a gift, it must be received. It must be taken. God will not force forgiveness on you. You must believe in the atonement of Jesus and choose to receive forgiveness of sins. Let's go to Matthew 18 begin to bring this so close. Matthew 18. It's a gift. You don't owe God anything. Matthew 18, verse 21. Matthew 18, verse 21. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. I want you to look at this. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord... How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? So seven times? Now, imagine this. Sometimes we just read through the Bible and don't picture it. Peter's brother was Andrew. He was a disciple. He was probably standing right there. So imagine Peter grabbing Andrew. Look, Jesus, I've forgiven this dude seven times already today. Do I have your permission to knock him out? Jesus said unto him, I say now unto you until seven times, but until 70 times seven. Now, Peter's like at 490, so we're at 483 right now. Andrew, you better be careful because you're the type of person that can get it. He's not saying count to 490. He's saying completion times completion times some. You keep forgiving. So then he begins to tell them this parable to drive home the point. He says, therefore, is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he began to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him 10,000 talents. Some people translate this to mean $20 million. Imagine being $20 million in debt. But for as much as he had not to pay, he couldn't pay it back. His Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and his children, all that he had, and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Be patient with me, and I will what? Pay you back, right? So what did the servant want? He wanted patience so that he can pay the king back. He wanted to pay his debt back. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him of the debt. Remember, when you forgive a debt, it's canceled. So when that man walked out of the room, he didn't owe $20 million anymore. He owed nothing. 
But that same servant whose debt was just canceled, who was just forgiven, went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him 20 bucks. And he laid hands on him, not for healing. (laughs) And took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe me. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, have patience with me, and I'll pay you back. And he would not, but went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told the Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you asked me. Shouldn't you have had the same compassion on your fellow servant, even as I had pity on you? Now, see, the thing is, I don't believe that servant who owed $20 million was an evil man. I don't believe he was just a bad person that wasn't grateful. I believe he didn't believe he was forgiven. Because if you were forgiven of $20 million, you'd celebrate. You'd be happy. You'd go home and tell your family, hey, we don't owe that money anymore. But what was the first thing he did? He didn't go home. He didn't go tell others he was forgiven. The first thing he did was trying to go get some money. I submit to you, he was still trying to pay the king back. Because he did not truly believe he was forgiven. Because if you truly believed you were forgiven, the first thing you wouldn't do is trying to go get some money. He didn't believe he was forgiven. And because he didn't believe he was forgiven, notice how he treated somebody else on the same level. See, so many people have an issue with other people in church because they really don't believe they're forgiven. So they come in on a different level than you. You've been at church longer. You've heard more word than they have. And they're not dressing the way you think they should dress in church. They don't lift their hands like you think they should lift their hands in church. So you're looking down on them because you think you're better. But when you get all the way deep down into it, The real reason you're doing all the things you're doing is not because you love God, but it's because you're trying to pay him back. Because you think back to how messed up you were before you found Jesus. And you're trying to live a certain way to make Jesus grateful that he saved you. You're trying to live in a certain way to pay God back. It is not on faith in the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus. Now you have faith in your works. Trying to make Jesus proud of you. Because now you're doing some good things and maybe I'm worth his investment. Because there was a parent in your life who treated you that way. There was a teacher in your life that treated you that way. And so now it's built up to religious scorn. Don't know why they think they can come to church that way. I don't know why they think it's going to work for them. I've been believing for 20 years. I haven't seen it yet. And he looked down on them. Could it be it's because you really don't believe you're forgiven? See, some of you, well, God forgave me of that, but when you take it down to the central issue, do you really believe God forgave you of everything? That you really believe that you don't owe God anything. We don't live right because we're trying to pay God back. We live right because we love God. Your motive is everything. If your motive for holiness is trying to pay God back, your holiness will be a scowl. You may do what's right, but it won't be full of love. It won't be full of joy. They'll be snarling at everybody who comes in. Because you truly don't believe you're forgiven. 
you have to let this revelation forgiveness strike you right down in the middle of your being. I'm forgiven. My debt has been canceled. So has your belief about forgiveness affected your relationships? Do you treat people harshly and judgmental because deep down you really don't believe you've been fully forgiven? Are you afraid to pray because you think God is angry at your past sin? So we come up things that aren't in the Bible think, well, I can't pray for about seven days or 70 days or to do seven Hail Marys until God is a little calmer because I really just blew it. So let me not talk to God for a little while because he's angry at me. That's not forgiveness of sin. See, because the blood of Jesus is strong enough to take care of all your past sin, your present sin, and your future sin. See, some people back away from God because they made a mistake. Or have you been running the race with God? You might have been running for a while, and then you messed up. It was embarrassing, and then you walked away from God. See, I like to run. That's one of the ways to keep myself healthy. I just recently got myself back into running shape. So I lost about 20 pounds this year. I've been running. I got myself to running shape. So like last week, I was running 5Ks every day just because I could. I got up to like, was it on Tuesday? I ran four miles just to push myself. And so on Thursday, I'm out running, deep in thought, just running. Just running. It's a pretty good run. It's a little bit slower than the day before, but it's still a good time. It's about 2.3 miles, and I'm running deep in thought. And the sidewalk wasn't quite even. And so there's like a gap in the sidewalk where it raises up. I'm deep in thought running, running. I've seen the spot before. I miss it every day. But not that day. So I'm running. I'm running. And my foot hits it. And it's not where I can catch myself on the next step and play it off. I'm talking about I went flying. I hit the ground. I skidded a little bit. It was bad. It was like a bad fall. I was going about six miles an hour. I was moving. And what made it worse, I saw someone driving by as I was in the air. Oh! So you know when you have those really embarrassing falls, you try to play it off real quickly, get up like, yeah, I'm fine. I meant to do that. I meant to do that. So I get up, check myself out, make sure I didn't break my phone, make sure I didn't break my headphones. Like, okay, I'm a little bit sore. Keep running a little bit longer. Okay, I'm bleeding a little bit, okay. Make it back to the house, clean the different wounds, bandage it up and everything. And that's just the story of running. But the thing is, on tomorrow, I'll be back to running. I'm not going to stop running just because I tripped. I'm going to stop running just because my fall was embarrassing. I'm not going to stop running just because somebody saw me fly like Superman. But how many people quit Jesus? Because in the run of faith, they tripped. It was embarrassing. People know your business now. People know you're not perfect. People know your drama. People know your issues. It was public. And now you're embarrassing. Well, I can't come to church. I got to hide. Man, I was walking with Jesus for so long. I knew better. Yet I still tripped. Yet I still fell. But the thing is, just because you've fallen, don't stay there. Get back up again. Go to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. 
I came back in the house, and I was like, you okay? I said, yeah, but it worked perfectly in the message on Sunday. <laughs> First John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, notice 1 John is written to believers, not written to sinners. It's written to Christians, church people. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When you confess your sins, it's not when God found out about it. He already knew. But you're confessing your sins to judge yourself, yeah, I was wrong. I missed it, God. Forgive me. And because he's faithful, because he's just, you confess it, he'll forgive you. He won't say, I'll think about it. He'll forgive you. He'll cancel the debt. He'll clean you from all unrighteousness. If he cleans you from all unrighteousness, all that's left is righteousness. Righteousness is your standing with God. There's nothing you can do to change your standing. Because you have standing with God, you can walk into God's presence even when you mess up. If your standing was affected by your conduct, when you had bad conduct, you couldn't come before God. But because your standing can never be affected because of what the blood of Jesus is, you can always come before God and ask for forgiveness and receive it. Then John goes on and says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. So don't try to say, well, I've never sinned before. Yeah, you have. Now you can say, my sin is under the blood of Jesus, so it doesn't exist anymore. That's accurate. But to act like there's never sin in your life, that's not scriptural. Now it doesn't mean you have to be conscious of your sin. It doesn't mean you have to remember it. But to say that you have never sinned, to act like you're perfect, that's not scriptural. You go to chapter 2, verse 1, it says, My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the who? Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for not just our sins, but the sins of the entire world. When God forgives you, he forgives and he forgets. He's not like some people say, I'll forgive you, but I'm not going to forget. God's not going to hold your sin above your head and remind you all the time to make you dance right like you're some trained performance monkey. He forgives you and he forgets. The blood of Jesus was so strong, it took care of your sin, past, present, and future. God has completely forgiven you. And you do not owe him anything. But you must make a choice to believe and follow him. Jesus paid for the sins of the entire world. You do not have to pay for your sins. All you have to do is make a decision to believe and follow him. So whether you're in here, you never asked Jesus to come in your heart today. Today is your day. You don't have to clean yourself up and come to God. If you could, you'd have done it already. But the thing is, we all have to come to a point and realize we need a Savior. His name is Jesus. You could be in here where you were saved, but you fell and you've gone away from God. Don't think, well, I need to do all these things right before I come back to Jesus. No, you can come to him today and he'll clean you right up. But also some of you need to refresh and renew your revelation and your understanding of forgiveness. That God really has forgiven you. That you don't have to pay God back. And because you truly believe you're forgiven, you can do Ephesians 4.32. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. We forgive everybody of everything because God has forgiven us of everything. 
You'll have good relationships if you understand you're forgiven so you can forgive others. We understand how God is looking at you is not with some judgmental scorn, that he's looking at you with eyes of love, that he sings over you, that he rejoices over you, that he's madly in love with you. You'll be able to mirror that to others. That although they've done things wrong, you don't hold things over the head. You're like, I forgive you just like God forgave me. So I'm not going to look at you differently because you tripped. I'm not going to look at you differently because your sin is public. I'm not going to look at you differently because you sinned differently than I did. I'm going to look at you through the eyes of Jesus. You see, when Jesus showed up on the scene, he didn't come judging people. He says, I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save it. And so when he would show up on the scene, he would be forgiving sins left and right. The religious elite were like, who can do this but God alone? So they missed the first revelation. And so they were trying to trap Jesus in the law. You can't trap the word with the word. And they brought this woman to Jesus. She was caught in the act of adultery, so they set a trap for her. They brought her, not the man, but that's another story. They brought her there. She's not even fully clothed. She's disheveled. She's embarrassed. She's thrown before the top teacher, the top prophet in the land. Everybody knows. She's thrown at the feet of Jesus. And they said, the law says we should stone her. This is the punishment for her sin. Her sin is crying out for death and destruction. What do you have to say about it? See, the thing is, if you throw a sinner at the feet of Jesus, don't expect judgment. You throw a sinner at the feet of a religious elite person, you're going to get judgment and scorn. But not if you throw them at the feet of Jesus. Because Jesus ignored them and started riding in the sand. We don't know what he was riding. He could even write in words, making a pretty picture. We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But he gets up, looks at all of them, says, well, whichever one of you is without sin, throw the first stone. And went back to riding in the sand. And it's from oldest to youngest, they left. And Jesus looked up again. And he says, well, where's your accusers? And he says, they're all gone. He says, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. So notice Jesus just canceled her sin. And set her free from that lifestyle. Jesus didn't come to judge you. He came to save you. I don't care what your sin is. I don't care what lifestyle has you trapped. Jesus paid for it. We have to stop acting like this is a big sin, this is a little sin, this is this, this is that. No, Jesus came for everybody. He paid the price for everybody. It's the blood of Jesus that did the work. I remember one time I was sitting outside. It was last fall, and I was just sitting outside enjoying the fall weather and enjoying it, just relaxing. And I saw these two people appro- approaching me enthusiastically. And I saw their walk. I was observing them. I was like, well, they're either enthusiastic Bible students or cult members. And they walked up and started talking to me. 30 seconds later, cult members. And so they began to tell me that in addition to Jesus, I needed all these other things, that I needed this new revelation for this certain person who's having these meetings. And so they try to t- twist scriptures around. And I said, that's not what it means. You're taking it out of context. You take stuff out of context, left with a con. And I kept talking to them, but I could tell it was frustrating them because they could never move me. And so I got to the point, I said, you're telling me that the blood of Jesus wasn't enough? I don't have to listen to you anymore. The blood of Jesus 
was enough. It was enough to clean me. It was enough to make me righteous. It was enough to open the doors of heaven for me. It was enough to wipe away all my past, all of my sin. The blood was enough. I don't have to perform to get on God's good side. Because of the blood of Jesus, I was born again on God's good side. Anytime I come to God, he's happy to see me. I don't have to walk on eggshells. I don't have to tiptoe. Maybe God likes me today. Oh, he more than likes me. He's madly in love with me. He gave me his name. He is my father. He adopted me into this family because of the blood of Jesus. It ain't about me. It ain't about what I do. Everything in Christianity, you don't get what you deserve. You get what Jesus deserves. Believer, you've been forgiven. It's time for you to really believe it and act like it. I hope you enjoyed today's message. We never want to close a broadcast without giving you an opportunity to make Jesus the Lord of your life. So if you've never asked him into your heart, you've never made him your Lord and Savior, pray this prayer with me today and mean it from your heart. Say, Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe that he died for me, but on the third day, you raised him from the dead. Dear Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Save me now. Forgive me of my sins. Fill me with your spirit and help me to live this Christian life. If you prayed that prayer and meant it from your heart, we believe you've been born again. We ask that you email us at info at FCCGA.com. That's FCCGA.com to let us know about the decision you've made for Christ today. Have an amazing day.